You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. I just need to have Paige introduce me everywhere I go. Like, before I enter a room, Clint Dog? Ah. Welcome, friends. Welcome, welcome. If this is your first time at Midtown, we're glad you're here. If it's not your first time at Midtown, we're also glad you're here. We're glad all of you are here. And it's good to see your guys' faces this morning. Uh, you guys, for many of us, Easter Sunday is a comfortable day. We've become comfortable in America with the message of Easter. Easter is the day that we all show up with our pastel colors, which you all look great, by the way, (laughs) or floral prints, right? And then we sing some fun songs and catch some good vibes, and then we go have a meal afterward. Then after that meal, we eat 37 Reese's eggs, right? That's always... (laughs) Breach, there we go. Yeah, now we're talking. We're comfortable with Easter, which is fascinating, because our idea of comfort is nothing like what the disciples experienced on the first Easter. The first time that people claimed to encounter the risen Jesus, these are the words used in the Bible to describe the reactions. Amazed, startled, troubled, disbelief, wonder, overwhelming joy, terror. That's not what we expect from our Easter, right? Hey, how was church today? Terrifying. It's terrifying. Maybe some of you for the first time are in church, you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. People are kind of weird. But according to the first accounts of the first Easter, there isn't anyone who just walked away that day saying, oh, what a sweet story, and then continued on with their comfortable life. No one walked away and then had a big meal and sadistically hid eggs for kids to go find somewhere. That's not how it worked. The first Easter caused everyone who experienced it to respond rapturously, not just comfortably. It caused everyone who witnessed it to actually change their lives. Because every person who was there was brought face-to-face with a life-altering, paradigm-shifting question. Who is Jesus? That is a question that has shaped history for the last 2,000 years. It sparked social movements. It's prompted political revolutions. It's transformed entire continents. And it's turned even the most grievous and heinous humans, punk kids, into saints. Who is Jesus is not a comfortable question. And the way we answer it changes everything about us, about the world, and about reality itself. And the truth is that every single one of us walks into this room with an answer to that question. Some of us like to say that Jesus is a teacher, and emphatically, yes. Jesus was an incredible teacher. Never before heard, never before seen teachings. A compelling picture of what it means to be human. But on Easter, we remember that Jesus was not just a teacher. He was much more than just a teacher. Some of us like to say that Jesus was a healer. And again, emphatically, yes, he was a powerful healer. His work and life made the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. But on Easter, we're reminded that even though he was a tremendous, the greatest healer, he wasn't just a healer. Some people like to say that he was a prophet. Again, we say emphatically, yes. Jesus spoke truth to power. 
He comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. He illustrated God's love, profound care for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for the vulnerable. But on Easter, we're reminded that even though he was the greatest prophet, he was more than just a prophet. See, Easter throws a wrench in all of those claims about Jesus because of one thing, the resurrection. See, so often we assume that Christianity is a set of ideas, moral guidelines, advice that we give, but it's not. It's not any of that, at least not primarily. Christianity is primarily a statement of good news. It's a statement that something has happened as a result of which the world is now a radically different place. And the good news is this, that Jesus Christ went into a tomb a dead man and came out of that tomb alive. That is the good news that Christians have proclaimed for thousands of years. That is the very heart of the faith. It's the good news that Jesus is king over all things, even over death, and that he is ushering in a kingdom of true peace and life and justice, and he's inviting all of us to participate with him in it. It's the claim that he is Lord, ruling and redeeming and restoring all things. So who is Jesus? I'll let the words of John Ortberg tell you guys. He is the hinge of history. He's the hope for the oppressed. He's the inspiration of the dying. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived, the greatest mind that ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement ever spread. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone becomes more present in each passing year. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the victorious risen King. Amen? Amen. That is the good news of Easter. And that is easily enough to shake us out of our comfortable pastel and floral Easter celebrations. Resurrection's too strong for that nonsense. Resurrection shakes us. It moves us. It stirs us. It's good news that changes everything. And when we read the resurrection account today, found in Luke chapter 24, we see why it's good news for every person in this room and every person outside this room. The resurrection is good news because it meets us in the dark, in our heads, in our bodies, and in our hearts. Friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24. Luke is the third book in your New Testament, so you're welcome to flip there if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The Word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 and then skip forward to verse 36. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they didn't find a body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe him. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And then he went home, amazed at what had happened. 
Now skipping forward to verse 36. While they, the disciples, were talking about all this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Can you imagine? They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Makes sense. He says to them, why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands, my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, you got anything to eat? (laughs) So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Messiah Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pick up this story in the dark. We're introduced to a group of women. We don't know the names of all of them, but we know the names of some of them. Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples of Jesus, who Jesus cast seven demons out of in her life. Mary, the mother of James, who's also the mother of Jesus. And Joanna. We know that this group of women is showing up at early dawn. It's a noteworthy phrase to tack onto there. Most historians think this would have been the last watch of the morning for the Romans, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means it's still grayish dark outside when they get there. There's another gospel account. The Gospel of John says that they arrived at the tomb while it was still dark. And this is certainly a dark morning for these women, but not just in the physical sense of the word. There's also a dark morning emotionally, spiritually for them. Remember what the rest of the disciples have been through over the last 48 hours. One of their good friends betrayed their best friend for a small amount of money to a gruesome death. And then they watched from a distance as their best friend, Jesus, was dragged in the middle of the night to a fake trial full of contradictory witnesses. He was proven innocent by how much of a sham that trial was, but he was condemned guilty, a miscarriage of justice in every way. And without any due process, he was brutally beaten by the cops in the middle of the street in front of everyone. He's been mocked and flogged and forced to carry his own torture device to his own death. He was strung up in the most shameful and excruciating way way possible. In fact, the Latin root for excruciating is the same root for crucifixion. And then they watched him die. They watched as his limp body was peeled off that cross and laid into a tomb. Their Lord was dead. So when we encounter these women at the beginning of this passage, we know that they are walking in oppressive dark. The dark of grief, of loss, of pain. They probably had trouble eating or drinking. They probably have had trouble sleeping, running back the memories, the sounds, the sights, the smells. They're wondering where it all went wrong. Because just like every one of us in this room, they are human. And just like every one of us in this room, they know that dead people stay dead. That's the amazing thing about dead people. They're really reliable. You always know where to find them. And that's why they're showing up with spices. 
It was custom in that day to visit the body for a few days after it had died and will anoint the body with spices. They're assuming that he's dead. They're showing up thinking death has won. Their grief has won. Their pain has won. They show up to grieve and mourn, to find some way to cope with what had happened. They show up to the tomb in the dark. And we need to hear that, friends, because many of us show up here today in the dark, just like these women. Amidst all the bright colors, amidst all the flowers and the fun phrases that we speak back and forth, many of us are walking through darkness every day. What is it for you today? Maybe, like the Marys, it's the recent loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the fracturing of a relationship. Maybe it's the uncertainty of your health, your own fragility, and the grief that comes with knowing that reality. Maybe it's grief over violence in our world, over shootings and storms and the like. Maybe you, like 51% of Americans under the age of 35, feel persistent feelings of hopelessness, a dread and angst and darkness that you can't seem to shake. We know the darkness in this room, just like these women knew the darkness. And sometimes we show up to church because we don't really know where else to go. But there's something else that this text wants us to know about the dark, friends. The dark is precisely where Jesus does his resurrecting. Notice, if they're showing up while it's still dark outside, when did Jesus resurrect? While it was still dark. He already resurrected in the dark. He didn't wait for the sun to come up to resurrect. He resurrected while it was still dark. That's good news for every one of us in this room. Because it reminds us that God's resurrection power has a way of showing up in the darkest of our nights. It always has a way of showing up and bringing love and peace and presence in the middle of those nights. So friends, there is no dark night that you can go through where God can't meet you. There is no dark place that you've spent time that can't be redeemed by God. There is no darkness at all that can prevent resurrection life from pouring into your life, today and forevermore. Heaven always holds us when it's dark as hell, friends. So whatever darkness you bring with you into this room, and whatever darkness you leave this room and walk into, remember that the resurrected Jesus shows up precisely there. Remember that God's presence meets you in radical and powerful ways in the dark. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. When these women arrive, ready to anoint the Jesus that they thought was dead, they find a remarkable sight. This stone has somehow been rolled away. And the stone, we learn in Matthew 27, it was designed to be sealed and so large that really only a group of strong Roman troops could move it. We're probably talking upwards of 2,000 pounds, this stone. And so you can imagine what thoughts are running through their minds, right? Racing through their thoughts. Did the Romans come and remove his body just to inflict more pain? Or the Jewish leaders, did they come and steal his body to inflict more pain on us or him? Where maybe there are grave, ro grave robbers that came that was common in that day. They think that the body might be valuable in some way, and so they came to steal it. And the stone is still rolled away. Maybe they're still in the tomb. Will they see us? What might they do to us when we show up? And amidst all those thoughts, with their pulses racing, these women step into the dark and damp tomb anyways. They have no idea what they're going to encounter in there. It's likely going to be dangerous. But they know one thing. They're looking for Jesus. That's the one thing that they know. These women could be risking their lives, but that matters less to them than finding Jesus. Can we real quick get an amen for women of faith who walk into the dark to find the risen Jesus? Amen. Who go into the darkness, not knowing what's there, no, not knowing what they might encounter, but looking for Jesus. 
And so these women step forward into the tomb. They've got their iPhone flashlights out, trying to figure out where they can look. But they don't find anything. Nothing. No body, no Jesus. And as they try to piece these things together, suddenly a great flash of lightning strikes them. So they drop their iPhones, they stumble back, and they see two angels with clothes gleaming like lightning that never stops, never-ending lightning. And naturally, the women are afraid, as all of us would be. I've jumped around the corner and scared my wife before. I can't imagine what this would be like, right? <laughs> but notice, the angels seem super casual about what's happened. Did you catch that? They ask a question, like, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's as if they're like, wait, why are you confused about this? He told you, Frank, check the notes. And Frank gets the notes out, and they check the notes. Yeah, he told you about this. He said this was going to happen. Why are you here in a graveyard? He's already risen. He's already on the move. He's already gone. It's as if, to these angels, this isn't surprising in the least. This is all standard, ordinary stuff. This is what God does. And so the stone and the guards and all of those hurdles that stood between these women and Jesus, they're all gone. It pales in comparison to what God is doing. And the casual way the angels treat the resurrection is a profound reminder to every one of us that there is no dark night that can stop us from getting to Jesus. There's no stone, no sin, no fear, no pain, not even death itself can keep you from the love and grace of Jesus Christ. The angels are making the definitive proclamation that the final word never belongs to the dark. The final word always belongs to Jesus. And so the resurrection, friends, it's good news in the middle of the dark of our lives, but it doesn't stop there. It's also good news in our minds. See, for many of us in our time, we've been taught that being a Christian means checking your mind at the door, checking your brain at the door. Believing this whole resurrection and Jesus thing, that's nice for people of faith, but for rational and thinking people, we can't really participate in the same way. But there's actually not at all how the story of the resurrection goes. These are actually really rational and thinking people. It took a huge amount of evidence, a tremendous amount of thinking and reasoning and wondering for any of the disciples to believe that this happened. They weren't predisposed to believing in resurrection. This wasn't something that just primitive ancient people used to believe. We like to think that, and it's often an overestimation of us and an underestimation of them. We're not any less or more gullible than they were. We might be scientifically advanced, but we know, and they knew, that dead people stay dead. In fact, first century Jews didn't have, didn't have any framework or a theology or belief to account for a man rising from the dead three days after he died and living forever in the middle of history and time. There was no theological framework for that in the first century. These people wouldn't have believed that this could have happened. It wasn't part of their way of seeing the world. In fact, there were other Jewish messianic figures that arose before and after Jesus who lived a public life, who rallied the people, who claimed to be the Messiah, and then died. And there was never a movement that sparked saying any of them rose from the dead. It never happened. Those messiahs died, and they're like, whoops, got that one wrong, right? I guess we got to move on. Never happened except for Jesus. So these people, they're not leaving their minds at the door. They think and they reason through this wild story. And Peter actually illustrates that for us in this passage. Notice, when Peter runs to the tomb, what happens? He gets there, and he investigates the evidence. He looks around. He pokes and prods. And then he walks away amazed at what had happened. Some of your translations might say he walks away wondering what had happened. 
Notice that it doesn't say Peter believed. He didn't come to the empty tomb and say, well, he rose from the grave. He came to the empty tomb and he was trying to think and reason through what could have happened. Resurrection wasn't within his frame of thinking. Literarily, that's actually the whole point of the empty tomb. It's an invitation for us to poke and to prod and to investigate, to ask questions. And we, like Peter, in our own time can ask questions. We can poke and prod and examine the evidence. Consider, for instance, in the first gospel account, here, in all four gospels, the resurrection, women are the ones who see the resurrected Jesus first and preach the message about his resurrection. And remember that these texts were written in the first century, which was a brutally misogynistic and patriarchal time in history. In the first century, no one would listen to the eyewitness testimony of women. We actually have historical record that this was the case. Listen to these quotes from the first century, and brace yourselves, 21st century people. It's going to sound a little alarming, as it should. An ancient Jewish historian named Josephus writes this, that in a court of law, it was a rule that no evidence could be accepted from a woman because women were too frivolous and audacious. One of the first critiques of Christianity early on was that women were the first witnesses. There's a guy named Celsus, a Greek author and critic, who found that Christianity was unbelievable precisely because it started with women. He said this, How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Male disciples in this time would never have believed this testimony. The text actually says this explicitly to us. When the women come back, what do the disciples do? They don't believe. They say, idle tale, wishful thinking. Crazy ladies. Who would listen to a woman? If someone was making this story up, if this was just fanciful religious myth-making, they would never start this story with women. It's a bad marketing move. You're never going to sell that product to anyone. The only reason that you'd place women at the center of this story is if you were actually trying to relay facts. It's if you actually had evidence that this had happened. And it's also a reminder to us that when we hear women preach the gospel, we should sit and listen. Amen? Amen. Come on. So using our minds, thinking through, reasoning through, how could it be? that hundreds of people who had no social, political, or theological reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead suddenly overnight decided to put their lives on the line for that fact? How could it be that hundreds of people suddenly overcame their misogynistic biases overnight? These were people who were skeptics, and they all put their lives on the line for this message. Why? Well, it's not because they checked their minds at the door. It's because they used their minds, they thought through it, and in the middle of all that reasoning and thinking, Jesus met them, risen Jesus met them in the reasoning and thinking. Friends, the resurrection is good news because it reminds us we don't have to check our minds at the door. Christian faith is not for the empty-headed. It invites questions. It explores the hard stuff. There's a theologian named Tim Keller who puts it this way. He says, if your Christian faith is not shot through with all sorts of reasoning and thinking, it'll never last through the ups and downs of life in this world. Christian faith is certainly more than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less. And we, at Midtown, want to be a place where that can happen. So if you're someone in this room who has questions, if you're someone who's exploring the story, maybe who's found it unbelievable or difficult or challenging, we've got space for those questions. You can fill out one of these Connect cards, as Paige mentioned. There's a Skeptics Bible Study that meets every couple weeks. We'd love to get together with you, and there's no question that's off limits. We'd also love for you to get connected in a community group. Those are places where questions can get asked back and forth, where this life gets explored, because we don't check our minds at the door. 
No question is off limits for us. No topic is too tough to handle. So the resurrection, it's good news in the dark, and it's good news in our minds, but it's also good news in our bodies. See, these disciples, after failing to believe their female counterparts, they together wonder and reason about what could have happened. They're trying to make sense of this event. And then Jesus shows up in their midst. And the response, note, startled and terrified, because they think they're seeing a ghost here. But what does Jesus insist on? When they think they're seeing a ghost, what does Jesus insist on? That he's not a ghost. That it actually is him physically. He invites them to touch him, to see his hands, his feet. He says that spirits, ghosts, ghouls, don't have flesh and bones like I do. And then, as they're taking this all in confusedly, Jesus asks them for a snack, which is hilarious. <laughs> He's like, hey, it's been a long couple days. You know, long road trip into hell and death and sin and all that stuff. Could I get a fish? Something. And that detail is really curious and funny. The whole point is that this story is hammering home a remarkable and unique claim that resurrection is spiritual and physical, not just spiritual. See, oftentimes, when we think about life after death, when we think about resurrection, even as Christians, we think of our souls floating off to some distant place with streets paved with gold and we're floating on clouds in sort of an ethereal spiritual sense, right? We think that Jesus is freeing us from this awful material world and that we'll live on in some distant neverland. But that's nothing like what is happening here. Jesus is telling us and showing us that in the resurrection, our future is an embodied future. He's telling us that our bodies and our souls matter infinitely. Friends, you're not a soul trapped in a bad body or world, and you're not a body without a soul. You're both of those things. And in the kingdom of God, in the resurrection, you get to experience the goodness of the spiritual and the physical. That's the remarkable good news of the resurrection for our bodies. In the resurrection kingdom of God, our feet will touch the grass. In the resurrection kingdom of God, our legs will dance and run and never grow weary. Our taste buds will drink and eat the most remarkable and delicious food. Our arms will hug and embrace and love. Anytime that you've been caught up in the joy of dancing with abandon, anytime you've embraced the ones you loved, you've tasted a small, small reflection of what the ultimate kingdom is going to look like. But the fact that Jesus is physically raised from the dead isn't just about our own personal bodies either. It also tells us that the material world is so important to God that he's come into the world to redeem it, to restore it. Jesus is telling us that this world, right now that we live in, matters to God and that it should matter to us. Resurrection never leads us to care less for the physical world, to discard it, to try to escape it. It tells us that we get to participate in the redemption and restoration of that physical world with Jesus. And so when we see a child that's been abandoned, the resurrection reminds us that their soul and their body matter infinitely to God, and so we love their body and their soul. When we see communities living in abject poverty, the resurrection reminds us that their souls and their bodies matter to God, so we help them. The resurrection doesn't mean that Jesus is going to teleport us to some distant paradise. It means that Jesus is coming into the world, that Jesus is healing this world right now. New bodies, new souls, new heavens, new earth, new life. We become people who deeply care for the world around us when we trust in this message. We don't ignore it or discard it or reduce it down. There's a great quote from a theologian named N.T. Wright who talks about this. He says, if Easter means that Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, 
then Easter is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, not just for me. News which warms the hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, that God is not prepared to tolerate any such thing. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. If you take away Easter, Marx was right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take away Easter and Freud was right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. And Nietzsche was right to say it's for wimps. You guys, Easter means that we don't spiritualize the world away. It means, it means we participate in resurrection life here and now and into eternity. We participate in the resurrection every time we embody the life that Jesus has called us to live. When we follow Jesus, resurrection is as daily evident to us as the sun rising and the birds chirping. So the resurrection, it's good news in the dark. It's good news in our minds. It's good news in our bodies. And finally, it's good news in our hearts. Notice Jesus' final words to his disciples in verses 44 through 48. He explains to them that the scriptures and the message of the kingdom of God and its arrival the whole of the scriptures he talks through, which sounds like an amazing podcast. I'd love to listen to Jesus unpacking the scriptures. And then he lands his message with two things, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He says that the fruit of his resurrection will be that there are disciples who will proclaim this good news so that all people can turn to God and receive his love and grace and life. But the resurrection isn't an exclusive club, that it's available for all of us. So according to Jesus, this brand new resurrection starts right here in our hearts. It starts with repentance and forgiveness. And repentance is just a fancy theological word. It means to make a complete change in your life. It means to live entirely differently. It means to acknowledge that our own self-defining of life and our own pursuits of good on our own terms, that those things ultimately end in death and that we are in need of new life. Repentance means becoming someone who lives to an entirely different way of being, entirely different way of seeing, myself and others and the world around me. Someone who dies to the old life and rises again to the new way of following Jesus. Frederick Beekner, a great author, puts it this way. He says, to repent doesn't mean to feel sorry about, to regret. It means to turn, to turn around 180 degrees. It means to undergo a complete change of mind and heart and direction. Turn away from madness, cruelty, shallowness, and blindness. And turn towards tolerance, compassion, sanity, hope, justice that we all have in us at our best. And when we practice this, when we slowly and steadily turn away from our dead and dying lives and live to Jesus' new life for us, we find that every time we receive forgiveness, restoration. Our old life has already died with Jesus on the cross. It's already done. It's finished. That's why Jesus said what he said. Our commitment to our own way, all the greed and pride and envy and lust, that's all dead. Jesus' resurrection tells us that there is no longer a dead life that defines us. There is only life with him. It is only walking with Jesus in which we find true, lasting life. Jesus has triumphed over the old dead one. And that's the ultimate message of Jesus. That our dying and dead lives do not define us. That the creeping caverns of our hearts, the ways that we ourselves contribute to pain and loss and grief and harm, those things in Christ cannot define us or win the day. That in turning to Christ, doing a 180, we receive resurrection life and proclaim that life to a world in desperate need of it, regardless of what they've done or where they've come from. 
And so the resurrection, friends, is good news for our hearts, for the deepest parts of us, which long to be freed from things like sin and pain and death. It's the remarkable good news of repentance and forgiveness. The good news that in turning to Christ, not even death itself has any sway over us or our world. So on this Easter, friends, would we be a church that doesn't just get comfortable with this message? Would we be a church that honestly and earnestly asks, who is Jesus? And will we be a church that proclaims the good news of Jesus' resurrection in the dark, in our minds, in our bodies, and in our hearts? Would we be people who are transformed, shaped, and molded every day by that profound truth? May we remember the power of these words. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray, friends.